You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. And welcome to another episode of Driving Law. I am Kyla Lee at Acumen Law. And with me, remotely because of COVID, yet again, my co-hostess with the mostest, Paul Doroshenko. Paul, welcome back. Thanks, Kyla. Glad to be back. Always enjoy being here as part of the podcast. Yeah, I mean, I enjoy it more when we can actually, you know, record it together. But between pandemic and busy work weeks and everything else it doesn't always mean that we can be in our studio together well when we recorded over zoom we could do it with video and then i'd be able to take some hints from you about when you want to move on to another topic but it uses so much bandwidth i just find the quality is better when we don't use the video yeah well and yes together in the uh, together in the studio is also great but uh, you know it's also at the end of the day and things have to get done this is true. Yeah. Um, anyway, we have a lot to talk about. A lot has happened in like the last week. It seems like last week at the podcast, we had topics, we had lots to talk about. And then that same day, there was all sorts of other stuff that came out that warranted talking about and we're, we're behind on the law of driving and driving law. Well, yeah, I know. And we really wanted to talk about this study. I don't know what you want to talk about first, but I, you know, there's lots to talk about, lots to talk about. This so study. Jump, right, jump right in wherever you like. Yeah, so the study is what I wanted to talk about mm-hmm. first. Uh, we got a copy of a study uh, that was published from uh, the Department of Justice's National Institute of Justice, which is kind of redundant, in the United States about cannabis impairment testing. So the study looked at, you know, first of all, can you quantify impairment by cannabis using like a THC limit? And also, how do you measure impairment by cannabis in somebody's ability to drive? Yeah, and this is hugely important because this is the whole backbone of the Canadian law. So we have THC levels that are, are prescribed by law, that if you have that, that THC level, uh, if that's the determination that's made, then you've committed a crime. You have that in your body, even if you're, you know, the, the presumption is that you're impaired. And the other thing is that the way the police make the determination to get to that point where they are detaining an individual for that investigation is a result of standardized field sobriety tests, SFSTs. And we've talked about it before, and we've said that, you know, the direction of the science, but now we've got the U.S. government, the National Institute of Justice, a, a, an arm of the Department of Justice that examines the science beside, behind things, coming out, publishing a study for the world, no debate, field sobriety tests and THC levels are unreliable indicators of marijuana intoxication. Yeah, Done. so let's go, through, let's go through what happened in the study, because I think... <clears throat> talk about you know we can we can get on the podcast and we can say well there was a study that said this but like as you and I both know lots of studies can happen like NHTSA the National Highway Traffic Safety Association has published all sorts of studies that are not peer-reviewed that are not double-blinded that are not uh even conducted using rigorous 
analytical methods to say that their SFSTs are good or the DRE is good. So let's talk about the actual analysis in, in this study. It took six double-blind clinical dosing sessions with 20 participants in each session. So 20 times six. So a pretty decent sample size. Yeah, 120 people. That's a good sample size. Yes. Uh, thank you for doing that math because I was trying to avoid doing the math. <laughs> um, well, so six they times two, Kyla. 12, Look, okay, it's the end of the day. I know, um, I know, I know, I know, I know. And I you, didn't you, sign not, up for the job to do math. Not, not confident in things at the end of the day, certain things like math. Anyway, yeah. go ahead. So, so they take known doses of THC to people using cannabis brownies. So they did it with edibles. Mm. To me is even more interesting because you know, we had all this discussion before legalization about how, you know, smoked and vaped cannabis affects you differently than edibles, which is true, but also that edibles are worse because the effects are stronger and we should be more concerned about edibles and people using edibles. They're actually administering it in edible format, which theoretically should produce greater impairment in people. And they gave them brownies with zero THC, 10 milligrams, and 25 milligrams of THC. And they also had the subjects vape. So they did it again with people vaping 0, 5, and 20 milligram doses of THC. And they spaced the doses at least one week apart to make sure that there was no, you know, likely no residual THC concentration from like a dose that they did the day before or earlier that day. So this is like pretty rigorous when you look at like the way that they, you know, they set up the framework as far as dosing people, they, they did it with both smoked and uh, edible cannabis. They did it to ensure that there was no cannabis underlying THC concentrations in a person's body. And then they tested blood, urine, and oral fluid samples. The three things that we use in Canada to prove that you're impaired by THC. Yep. <clears throat> and the conclusion. They, they did tests. So after they did this, they tested cognitive and psychomotor performances um, using a bunch of, uh, of different tests. So they did paste serial addition, which since I couldn't multiply six, six times two, obviously would have failed. <laughs> Digit symbol substitution. Divided attention tests, like what they do at the roadside, where they're like, give me your license, and they're also questioning you while you're getting your license out. Smartphone app tasks, like that, what is that, Druid app that we've talked about before on the podcast? And yep. the SFSTs. Mm, yeah. And they found that the performance in the tests were negatively affected after all oral and vape doses of cannabis, except for five milligrams of vape THC. And the peak effects were observed between zero and two hours for vaped THC and three to five hours for edibles. Very consistent with the, you know, sort of when you would expect to see impairment based on the consumption of, of uh, cannabis in those, those ways. But what they found that was most important was that the three standardized field sobriety tests were not sensitive to cannabis intoxication for any of the study participants. So 120 people 
doing eaten and vaped cannabis had no impairment, no indicia of intoxication on any of the SFST battery. So why is this so important? Why is this so important? Well, there's two reasons why it's so important, Paul. <laughs> well, I mean, there's lots of reasons, but I just want to read out one of the sentences from the conclusions and the implications for law enforcement. Yes. It's a summarizing what you just said. The researchers observed that standardized field sobriety tests commonly used to detect driving under the influence of drugs or alcohol were not effective in detecting marijuana intoxication. Yes. So implications of that in Canada. Massive. Uh, and in BC in particular, well, we go to court, you know, you do judicial reviews of 24-hour driving prohibitions for drugs where police officers do a standardized field sobriety test and then issue a 24-hour driving prohibition. Goes yeah. on somebody's driving record it is the most stigmatizing thing on a driving record. 24-hour driving prohibition, parentheses, drugs. Can refer you to remedial programs, can trigger further driving suspensions, can impact your employment, can impact crossing the border. Oh, I mean, it can, it can ruin your life. And people call and they, they want to fight it because it can ruin your life. Um, and particularly depending on where your life was going or where you are in your life. Uh, and, you know, I'm standing in court sometimes with people who've got two previous 24-hour driving prohibitions. And I'm thinking to myself, like the, the court's going to be harsher on them because of that. But they, they could be completely, on the basis of this, completely bogus. And in those cases that you have argued in BC Supreme Court, you have never had the ammunition to show that it is bogus. Look, I went all the, all the way to the Court of Appeal on a case where I said, you cannot do these roadside sobriety tests, which under the criminal code are only admissible for the purposes of allowing an officer to have grounds to take further action. They were never meant to be used to punish somebody. They were never meant to be used as an evidentiary test to found these, these prohibitions. There's no authority in the legislation for an officer to rely on it. And because they're an administrative tribunal, their authority is derived by statute. I made all of those arguments. And to that, the court of appeal said, yeah, they can do it. It's fine. It's designed to test for impairment for drugs, but it's not. It's not. It doesn't test for cannabis impairment. Yep. Um, it's very frustrating our system of courts. You know, and and here's, now here's, how do you, how do you deal with that? <laughs> how do you deal with it? But also, like, you can't put this study in. You can't put this study into court, go and challenge the 24-hour prohibition for drugs and say, well, you know, this study from the U.S. said that these tests aren't sensitive to cannabis intoxication. So if a person was impaired by cannabis, as the officer found, and the prohibition was properly founded on the SFST test, then that wouldn't, that wouldn't make sense because the court will just turn around and say, well, this information wasn't before the officer at the time that he made the decision to issue the prohibition. And because it's an administrative prohibition, the question is, what did the officer know at the time? So you literally cannot win with this, with this, this information. It doesn't change anything for people, even though the science on these tests has been consistently coming back as saying, these do not test cannabis impairment. 
which brings me back to my my <laughs> my concerns with our justice system in Canada. Well, my concerns oh. with this system, certainly. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's that that in itself, just the twenty-four hour driving prohibitions and the thousands of people who've been issued it on the basis of an SFST um, for cannabis. Uh, all of those people, I, 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 you know, it pains me so much to know that they've they've suffered wrongly. They were basically all wrongly issued these driving prohibitions. Yeah. And if the government wants to come along and issue some other driving prohibition that doesn't show up on your driving record, that's one thing. Sure, it's one thing to take somebody off the road for twenty four hours and go look, have a timeout, and they can yeah. put it in CPIC. They could put it in Prime. You know, where police who are going to you know potentially pull you over in the next twenty four hours will have access to the information. They can serve you with a document and send a record of that document to ICBC to found a driving while prohibited charge for like the handful of cases every year where somebody drives in the course of a 24 hour prohibition. Like they can cross all the T's and dot all the I's for the people who breach that while still being fair. Yeah, yeah. I don't know, look, am I the one smoking dope here? Like, this just seems to me like, like the government gets this insane power to write laws, to completely ignore science, and to write the law in such a way that you cannot use the science to challenge the consequence that befalls you as a result of the law. Well, again, this is, this is a failing of our Canadian justice system. I don't think it would happen this way in the United States. I think you could present it and you could show that, look, this is a flawed system. And we hear all the time of lawyers, you know, presenting evidence, demonstrating that, uh, you know, breath testing devices flawed. And then they go and look and they realize that they've, you know, 3000 devices in the state have not been properly calibrated. And they go back and they dig through all of those, those cases and they, and they, you know, cancel the people's convictions or overturn them. And they do that. They do that with some frequency. You know, you and I have been monitoring at you for 10 years and me for 20. Does yep. this ever happen in Canada? Even if the same breath testing equipment has been exposed. You know, I exposed the problem with the BAC Data Master C. As far as I'm concerned, nobody should have been convicted on the basis of that instrument. Is anybody going to do anything about it? No. Now we've got thousands of people who have been issued 24-hour driving prohibitions on the basis of cannabis. We've got a study from like the most reputable study you're going to get undermining their own system admitting to their fault of their own system and is anybody going to do anything about it we could present this in court all we want is anybody going to do anything about it no no so here's the other reason why this is massively important if you're not getting a 24-hour prohibition an officer who does the sfst comes to the conclusion that you're impaired then arrests you and subjects you to the drug recognition evaluation, right? Then obtains a bodily fluid. And then obtains bodily fluid. So you, your, your pee, your spit, or your blood, <laughs> all of yeah. which the cannabis will show up in. Now this study found, and, and I'm quoting from my blog post about it, as for the biofluid results, samples of the participants' blood, urine, and saliva were collected every hour for eight hours after consuming cannabis. They were tested for THC and non-psychoactive components, cannabidiol and uh, cannabinol. And according to the study, 
the levels, this is a quote from the study, the levels of all three targeted cannabis components did not correlate with cognitive or psychomotor impairment measures for oral or vaporized cannabis administration. So they gave them the doses and everything except the five milligrams vaped gave impairment at some point on the tests, except for the SFSTs. But all of the other like cognitive and psychomotor tests, there was evidence of impairment. Their blood THC concentration did not match their level of impairment. They had no relationship. In Canada, if you do the SFST, you perform poorly, the officer forms the opinion, they arrest you, they take you back and they do the drug recognition evaluation. At the end of that evaluation, they take something that's going to detect the presence, only the presence, not even a concentration, the presence of cannabis in your blood, urine, or oral fluid. And if the blood, urine, or oral fluid detect the presence of cannabis and the drug recognition evaluator predicts cannabis as the likely source of impairment, there is a presumption in the criminal code that you are guilty, that you are impaired by cannabis. And they always find that they're impaired. They never oh. go through it. They never go through it and say, you know what, this guy's not impaired. Because <laughs> it doesn't matter what you are, because it's this physical physical indicia of things that like I, I I would fail. I know I failed the DRE or I struggle through it. Well, um, I I passed it in the past, but I you know I have trouble walking because of my my flat footedness and fallen arches. I've I've pulled out my drug recognition evaluation matrix card. This is a card that all drug recognition evaluators are assigned for the purpose. Funny of funny thing is Kyla, Kyla keeps it in her purse. And she was comparing the other day with an RCMP officer who's a DRE expert. Yeah, you've got yours there. Oh, yeah, I keep mine here. She's like, I've got mine on my clipboard right here. I was like, I've got oh. mine on my purse. <laughs> um, but no, let me read you for cannabis. Vertical nystagmus, none. Horizontal gaze nystagmus, none. Uh, pupil size, dilated or possibly normal. Reaction to light, pupil reaction to light, normal. Uh, body temperature, normal. The only things that are outside normal are your blood pressure will be elevated, your pulse rate will be elevated, and you won't be able to cross your eyes if you can already cross your eyes, which a lot of people can't do. Um, <laughs> so if you're normal, 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 and you can't cross normal, your eyes, then you are impaired by cannabis. If everything's normal, except your heart rate is a little bit over 90 beats per minute and your blood pressure is a little high, like, I don't know, maybe you're stressed out because you just got arrested and accused of being high while driving. Yeah. Then you're high on cannabis. Well, there was that, you know, drug whisperer uh, police officer in the U.S. who would pull over anybody and they'd be high on cannabis. Well, uh, yes. you know, this is it's, it's, it's slightly not as bad in Canada. But I have to tell you, folks, um, we are complacent in Canada. We don't question the police the way that they do in the United States. We don't question a number of processes, uh, steps that they take. We, we just operate under this assumption that we are better. And it's a real bizarre arrogance that we have. Uh, and I have to tell you, um, we've got some more things we've been working on that indicate some frightening conclusions. We are not better in any way. I mean, I, I, for all of our Canadian lawyer listeners out there, I got to tell you, like, we dropped the ball 
as lawyers, we really drop the ball. Yeah. If you go to a single conference in the U.S., you know, sign up virtually to attend the um, the National Association or so the DOI Defense Lawyers Association. Sorry, there's somebody taunting my dog at my fence. Um, the DOI Defense Lawyers Association national seminar that's uh, happening at the end of this month. You can attend virtually and listen to the things that lawyers in the US do for their clients compared to what we do here to try and get the evidence and, and expose problems. Like these things are happening in the US. They're not happening here. No, wait, you know, it's like people don't want to think outside. I hate the phrase, think outside the box. And we really are like stuck in our little provincial way of thinking. And it's very frustrating to me. And, and when you go up against that, uh, you know, you're going up against tradition. Yep. Part of the tradition is just to, to, you know, run the arguments that have existed out there for forever. And maybe every once in a while, find something slightly different. Um, but still just like charter arguments and that's it rather than, than digging further and digging deeper. Yeah. The smartest thing I ever did was starting to go to all of those conferences. You know, I think how, like, we've had some pretty damn good, impressive success. And why? You know, you and I know the reasons why. It's because we started forcing ourselves outside of our comfort zone and outside of our, our little closed group. And you and I are not club members. You know, we're, we're never, we're never going to be part of the old boys club because we both resist that. Also, uh, I'm but, old a boy. Well, that's true. Um, I'm not old either. And um, I guess I'm a boy, but the uh, point is the, uh, the old boy, old boys clubbery um, is a disadvantage to the client. And, you know, the, the things that we've succeeded in that, you and I know others would not succeed in, mm -hmm. not with the arguments that we've developed, well, the um, have lost. been to the advantage of our clients. And, and the things that we've lost based on things that we know should succeed. Well, that's true too. That's true too, because our courts are just not going to entertain something. And I, and I chalk it up to arrogance. Well, I have to pause. I have, yeah. There's something going down outside my Sorry about that. I was a police incident in my yard. The exciting life. <laughs> exciting Living in the big life. city. Life in East Van. Yeah, it's more exciting than Da Vinci's inquest, I'll tell you. Yeah. Being, <laughs> Kyla, being Kyla Lee. Yeah. I know. Um, anyway, but now that that is over, <laughs> where were we? Lawyers. We all are not doing enough. And yet. I was, I was our, angry. Our system. Now my, my anger has subsided. Our system is structured to prevent us from doing more. I don't blame the lawyers here. I blame the system because they've, you know, I guess like I can blame lawyers from a long time ago who didn't fight against changes that have happened and now it's become the norm that defense counsel can't get access to information that, that demonstrates that the way that we measure impairment is wrong, that defense counsel can't raise issues about police using templates. Whereas like my colleagues in the US can get all of the reports prepared by an officer to see how many times every person they pulled over has exactly the same symptoms. Um, you know, all of that, oh, oh, somebody's being arrested at the bus stop. Um, uh, all of that is, uh, is, you know, stuff that we as lawyers 
for years never did anything about. And now we're in a situation where we've got a system that is that is stacked against us and the norm sure. is- Lawyers, Tim Foster pushed this thing hard, did the right thing, pushed it to the Supreme Court of Canada and the Supreme Court of Canada said, no, no, that's fine. Well, let look, your life be destroyed on the basis of, you know, not letting the lawyers being able to dig. And the, But the worst part about that was the, the law developed here in such a way that the judge could go get the information and then look at the information and draw their own conclusions about whether it would actually be helpful. And then if they did that, uh, they could use that information to, their, to say that the application should be rejected. So you can't get the information to look at it, to interpret it, to have your expert go, actually, this is useful for this. You also don't know, you're going at it blind. You don't know what you're looking for, but you know there might be something there. Yep. It's, it's just, yep. Uh, yeah. Anyway, that is that is what we deal with. But let's move on to something that will get my blood boiling, perhaps less than yours. Um, the BC Cycling Coalition. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I know, right? You're laughing because it's me and cyclists. Kyla versus the cyclists. Um, has put forward a proposal. Um, they're trying to get funding to create a whole campaign to get the provincial government to change the Motor Vehicle Act to make it so that 1.5 meters of passing distance is required passing a cyclist on the roadway. That's that's four and a half feet, right? Roughly. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Seems about right. Yeah. Do you know how wide a separated bike lane is? Um, less than that. Yeah, they want more passing distance than all of the existing bike lanes. Well, maybe they think if they've asked for for one and a half meters that they'll get a meter. <laughs> I mean, you know, here's the thing. I remember I have this like it's imprinted in my brain riding down white avenue in edmonton probably not the smartest place to ride but there wasn't you know side roads to ride on it wasn't set up for bike lanes so i would just ride on the street and i got to 99th street and i was going um going eastbound and mm -hmm. uh there was a truck uh pulling a trailer with a bobcat on the back and this guy didn't care if he killed me and I was coming up passing parked cars and uh, I was in the right lane as tight as I could get. And they, I was coming up toward the mirror of a Chevy van. And mm -hmm. this guy was, you know, it was just the timing. Um, and I, I came very close to dying. And I still remember it so clearly because it was so terrifying. Now, I've also had cyclists who I gave 1.5 meters to who then rode up and, you know, next intersection rode up beside me and hit me with their their bike pump hit my car yep so the problem of course is that and i've said it before and i'll say it again people when they get on their bikes have this different attitude and i have this different attitude too i get in my car i have an attitude it's different <laughs> than walking down the street i get on my bike i have an attitude it's different than walking down the street your bike there's this sanctimonious sense that you're you're, you're saving the world and you know you should be entitled to rely on your forward momentum and not have to stop for stop signs and uh, not have to stop at red lights and that you know you should be entitled because you are not doing any damage to the earth and here you are just freely out there just your light little body on a on a metal frame mm -hmm. and 
And so, you know, that the, the arrogance level, and I'm watching the cyclists go down the street here. I mean, the arrogance level of cyclists is uh, when they, particularly when they're riding, you know, yeah. I, I, I do everything to check it for myself to make sure that I'm, and I, and I still, despite that, I still struggle with it when I'm on my bike. Um, and so this really, to me, is a uh, new manifest example of the arrogance of the cyclist. Uh, and, and you experience it every time it's on the news. Every time I talk about why the cyclists are wrong, I get, you hate cyclists. Um, no, I like cyclists that follow the rules. But the problem is that they by and large, don't follow the rules because they don't read the motor vehicle act. So I don't know rules apply to them. Like riding to a breast, uh, <laughs> that is specifically prohibited in the motor vehicle act. Does it happen all the time? Yup. But the motor vehicle act itself already does what they want. There's already rules that apply to cars that say when you're overtaking another road user, including a cyclist, you can only do so when that can be done in safety. Yeah, and I know. Section 144.1b of the Motor Vehicle Act, much loved section, says that you can only, uh, you have to um, drive with reasonable consideration for other road users. Well, reasonable consideration would mean giving an adequate distance to cyclists when you're passing them. Yeah. So there's no Absolutely. reason. No reason to amend the act. No reason to require an arbitrary number. And like, I'm sorry, but why is why is 1.5 meters the number? What's is it? Is it somehow more safe than 1.3 meters? You're not well, going to hit them 1.3 meters away. A, just as much as is, you're not going to hit them if you're 1.5 meters away. Politically, this is a reply to the decision that came out recently, where the cyclist was at fault for running into a bus. Yep. And. This is the, this is their, you know, step one is, okay, we lost this. The people who are cyclists will be up in arms. Let's take this moment of opportunity to try and, you know, turn ourselves more into, uh, into the persecuted martyrs that to gain sympathy because we're so, because we are so pure as cyclists um, and, and to push for a change, you know, and to stay also relevant and in the media. Well, and, you know, there was also that story out of North Vancouver where um, there was the Crown Adam Flanders who was running a trial with a, a like truck driver that struck and killed a cyclist who was charged with um, Doring. Uh, it was just a, a Doring, but it was being prosecuted because there was a death with Crown Counsel. And he was acquitted in the end um, because the evidence did not satisfy the court beyond a reasonable doubt. That was Chris Johnson's case, yeah. Yeah, and, um, and the cyclists on Twitter were all like, so you could just murder a road user and get away. Like he wasn't charged with murder. He was charged with negligently opening his door and they couldn't prove who opened the door. So he was acquitted. There was no murder. There was no, no homicide as that term is meant in law. Uh, it was a horrible accident. Why should somebody have to, you know, why should somebody, and then they said, the other thing that like irked me about it was the article, the news story said that if convicted, he would have faced an $81 fine. Well, no, if it's being prosecuted through court, he would face up to $2,000 fine. 
and up to six months in jail and he could get a driving prohibition. It's not a traffic ticket hearing where, yes, he would only get an $81 fine. Not nearly sensationalistic enough, though, Kyla. No sensationalism. No sympathy for the cyclist. The poor victimized cyclist should have justice, even if that means stripping away all the things that we understand in our justice system justice to be, including, most importantly, proof beyond a reasonable doubt of all of the essential elements of the offense. Forget it. Not when a cyclist is killed. I've done my best to defend mainstream media because I don't want to encourage people getting their news from, you know, stupid sources that are completely unreliable. And I've decided long ago that I was going to be a loud, aggressive voice for the centrist and moderation. And this just disappoints me when so often the news stories twist it. Yeah. Um, and this is mainstream media news stories twisting $81 fine. Yeah. Well, he, you know, yeah. He, Making he, it real hard for me to defend mainstream media. Well, I mean, that's one story. That's one person. No, but, 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 it's, but it's a fairly consistent pattern we observe. Right. And, you know, you can understand the position of the journalist who has to sell the story to their editor or has to put it on the news or whatever. And, I, you know, lots of times I've been the benefit of that um, in the sense that the story that I wanted to get out there was was made interesting because it was controversial. But, you know, on the other hand, you know, it can also be fundamentally misleading when you're not presenting the 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 actual fact of the matter but you know what would the cyclists who were outraged about what happened in the case have felt any better if the potential if they knew that the potential jeopardy was a two thousand dollar fine and up to six months jail i doubt it because they're calling it murder so they obviously want something more than you know a short sharp stint in a provincial institution well um, anyway let's just be honest there's no jail time for these types of things well, not for that. Not for that. I mean, anybody can open their door and, and even be reasonably cautious and open their door and a cyclist can still come along. Yep. Um, you know, it's a problem. It's a, it's a danger on the road and the cyclists would like to eliminate all the cars. All there right. Well, that's like... Not going not gonna to happen. That's enough things that upset us, Paul. I think it's time a reprieve from the upsetting and time instead to talk about the ridiculous driver of the week the ridiculous driver of the week i love the ridiculous driver of the week i hope it's the one you promised would be the ridiculous driver of the week it is so if you have tiktok you should go to the TikTok account for somebody named uh, Richilbeta. I'm going to spell it R I C H I L B E A T A. Go to their TikTok account. And there is a video of the most ridiculous driving situation. It's one of those videos where, like, you're watching it and you're laughing and you're like, okay, this is great. And then it's getting a little old and you're like, okay. I, I get, I, I got the plot here. And then there's a twist at the end that you just do not see coming that is what, what is so funny. And it doesn't look contrived. It looks 
like legit. Mm -hmm. um, and as you're watching it, you're sitting there thinking to yourself, okay, well, you know, it's, uh, ha ha ha, it kind of falls Should into some stereotype thing here. But then you get to the end and it's just the, the twist is fantastic. Should I spoil the video for our listeners by telling them what happens or? I don't think you should. I don't think you should. It's a, it's an issue of parking. Totally. So it's a, it, I think we could talk about the everything but the end. It's, um, it's women helping women. It's women helping women. Yeah. It's, I love that. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's pretty funny, Kyla. Yeah. Women helping women. Um, so there's a uh, uh, woman who's coming to, to parallel park and first she drives in nose and in and there's enough room that she could do it and it's it's actually a, a reasonable nose end in parking and it looks like it's a it's a round curb so she could drive up on the sidewalk for that purpose it's not a driving or something i can't remember what she's driving i think it was a volkswagen i think it was like a passat um but a nice car anyway and then she goes to back in and you can see she doesn't turn at the right time she sort of has her she has her rear wheel by the bumper of the car in front of her correctly, but then she doesn't, she overturns to start and then turns and then doesn't correct. And then she pulls ahead and then she gets out and she walks to check the length of the space to see whether her car would fit. In her car, there's plenty of room. Like it's it's almost the space for two cars if it was tight. Um, yeah. And then there's a, a, a one motorist you can see, or, or and I'm sorry, a, a, a pedestrian walking by sort of, Clears out of the neighborhood uh, the because you can see this is dangerous. And then another, uh, this the woman helping women comes along to give guidance, and she's guiding her as she's backing up, and she's standing there, and you're half expecting her to get run over because of the place that she's standing. And then she comes so close to that car behind, she may have hit it. Um, and that is where I will leave it because there's so much suspense at that point that you absolutely have to find the video. Watching her struggle with the parallel parking is entertaining enough. It's sort of entertaining, like watching somebody drive away from the gas pump while they still have the hose in the in yep. the uh, car and you can see it, you know, it's a, that level of entertainment, but it goes a little bit further when you mm -hmm. get to the, when you get to the, the, the women helping women. Watch to the very last second. It is worth every single second. It is a, a beautiful piece of art. <laughs> And that's the first time we've ever had a TikTok, uh, a TikTok. So we'll, we'll post it along with the, uh, on our personal Twitter accounts and on the Vancouver criminal law one, if we can figure it out. And the, and the BC driving or the, uh, the sorry, the, uh, the driving law podcast one. I saw it at uh, Tim J. Hogan's Twitter account and his comment was, we have a late nominee for best picture. I laughed, I cried. It's very true. Yeah. I, I wasn't a big fan of the music, but, you know, it kept me going. I kind of wanted, like, just for laughs, gags, music. Mm, yeah, I think, it, I mean, I know it may be trite, but I thought the Curb Your Enthusiasm music would have been better. <laughs> yeah, that would work right at the end. Bum, 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 bum. Yeah, 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 they could have just done that right at the end. <laughs> a little moment of silence there for the last bit. Yeah. My God, it was good. And there was a few other uh, good, ridiculous drivers that, this week, but nothing came close to that. No, uh, it was just amazing. Yeah. yeah. And that, that, you know, the person who is in that video, I don't know if they can make any money from it, but boy, you know, the, a star is born. <laughs> um, that's our podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Sorry for the anger. 
glad to give you education about cannabis and driving and uh we'll do it again next week yes we will thanks kyla thank you and if you need to find us online you can find us at vancouvercriminallaw.com or if you have any driving law related questions give us a call at 604-685-8889 and tune in next week for another exciting episode of driving law